feelings of insufficiency like and phoniness, uh, otherwise known as imposter syndrome. That was a term that was coined by two psychologists in the late 70s doing research around high-performing women. This feeling of even though I achieve at consistently high levels, I still don't belong here. I'm a phony. I'm going to be found out. We can have high performance without really feeling internally confident, internally whole, or fulfilled. So the, the way I define peak performance is that you are achieving and you are feeling fulfilled. It's both of those things. And then it's not being, it's not necessarily being the best, but being your best, mm. which is important because yeah, that, that takes away that, that comparison piece of, no, this is about me being my best. Am I better than I was yesterday? Am I improving and developing? Am I getting results, but also am I fulfilled by those results? So I have to be fulfilled. Today's guest on the Third Place Podcast is Bob Lesser. Bob recently wrote a book called The Peak Performance and is passionate about empowering others to become their best selves and building meaningful and successful organizations. As an executive and organizational coach, Bob emphasizes individual growth as well as the evolution of systems and culture. Bob studied management, negotiation, and leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he holds a master's degree, and attained his BA in sociology from Vassar College. Bob also lived in Vietnam, where he studied meditation and Buddhism, and he currently lives in Oakland, California with his wife and three children. We welcome Bob to the third place. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging, empowering, and and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Bob Lesser, welcome to the Third Place Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So we were fortunate enough to be introduced to you through your new book, The Peak Performance Formula, which a previous guest of ours, Angela Engel, uh, is publishing. She also, fun fact, happens to be my publisher for a book that I've been working on. So uh, yay. Shout out to Angela. Like, (laughs) isn't she the best to work with? (laughs) Yes, she is. Yeah, she's amazing. And it's important to have a great team around us. Yeah, and she definitely brought vulnerability to the Third Place podcast. And after her experience of being on our podcast, she's like, you guys have got to interview Bob. He's just got such a great story to share. So uh, so we're really happy that you're here and, and are looking forward to our conversation today. Um, I think to me, when you and I first met, what struck me the most was your genuine desire to empower other people to become their best selves. And really, that was the driving passion of why you wrote your book, The Peak Performance. Where did that inspiration come from to empower others? Yeah, you know, like so much of, of our purpose comes from places in our lives where, you know, we were either overlooked, uh, not seen, not, not attuned to, or hurt. And, you know, I share in the, 
introduction of the book, this experience that I had when I was in elementary school, and I was really excited about this book that I had read that I was doing a book report for. It was, uh, it was Stuart Little by E.B. E. White. It was about a little mouse who, you know, like gets adopted by a family. I know, just like watched family. that movie yeah, did you? with yeah. my four-year-old last week. Yeah. I, I love that you just brought that up. Yeah. So I, I was so excited about the, what the book and I, and I, and I spent all this time doing a book report and, um, wrote, it was like 14 pages and I was, I don't know, in like third grade or something. And it was like Whoa. 14 pages and I designed a cover and I handed it in and I was, you know, so excited to get feedback on it. And I, and I got back from my teacher, like, good job, but it was too long. And, you know, you, you did too much. And it was like this experience of being, you know, my potential not being, um, fully seen, felt, acknowledged. You know, here was this kid with this passion for this so clear, you know, as, as day. And instead of that teacher saying, look, it's clear you've got this passion. Why don't you write another, you know, 10 pages on this? You know, you want some extra credit saying like, you know, this was too much, too long, too much for me. And so, you know, I think that that early experience and other experiences like that of feeling like um, my own potential was not being, uh, you know, r- really sort of fully uh, recognized by others. And therefore, I wasn't able to maybe thrive in some of the ways that, you know, I, I could have, you know, what would have been possible. Um, I, I think that to me, that was the sort of seed for, I, I never wanted to see that happen to anyone else. You know, I always wanted to be somebody who would help others realize their potential, r- realize what they were capable of, be a, a champion and a cheerleader for them. And so that, you know, that sort of early experience and others, you know, kind of, I think helped me down a path of really being someone who who wants to help others find their best and be their best. Sounds so stifling. I mean, my heart breaks for the fourth grade Bob because (laughs) (laughs) like when you said that, I was like, oh man, because yeah, it was almost like the person that was giving you guidance was focusing more on making you stay on path, giving you critique and um, feedback. One of my best friends calls it feed forward, which Mm -hmm. I've been using more and more. And I love that. Shout out to my friend Kylie. So if she's listening, but that stifling nature when in actuality, especially how formative that time was for you to really focus in on what was good first about what you had done, which is clearly the passion and the drive that you had to talk about Stuart Little and and then maybe follow it with some suggestions or channel that fire still, right? Like redirect that fire in a way that maybe the teacher was trying to. I think that that's what I feel sad about is the lack of redirecting fire and really using that fuel and recognizing where the fuel is even showing up to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she was probably, you know, feeling overwhelmed. She had 30 right. reports to grade and was probably, you know, under all kinds of other stress. And, and so, it's not saying that I don't want to single this one teacher out. I think we're just, this is the world we live in where we're all born with kind of unlimited potential. And then through the constraining factors in our lives, um, we have to sort of work within those. And sometimes we are stifled and sometimes we are shut down. Um, this is also where resiliency comes from. This is also where we develop that sort of toughness of character to keep persevering. Cause I think without that kind of experience and others, you know, I wouldn't, have this this drive in me or this passion in me to help others be their best. So I needed to experience that in order mm-hmm. to say, wait a minute, you know, that's not right. That's not fair. I don't want that to happen to anyone else. 
I want to be somebody who helps people achieve their fullest potential. So I think it's the world that we live in. I think we can grow from these experiences, um, but they hurt. And I think we've all had them. You know, we've all had these occasions where we haven't been seen for all that we're capable of. For me, those are kind of key moments in, in our lives. Yeah, I mean, if you would have been given accolades for the 14-page paper, you know, that would have been a whole different uh, story. You know, if, if, if you had been encouraged repeatedly for your fire and your passion and your high-performing drive, then you wouldn't have written a book about peak performance and making sure that you could highlight those and mirror that in others. So um, I love that you just brought attention to the fact that these, uh, you know, make your mess your message sort of thing, yeah. which is what I've been loving. So you speak about the performance paradox in your book. Can you tell our listeners what this is and what that means? Yes. Yeah. So the the performance paradox is, is really speaking to the fact that in many ways we are designed to work against ourselves, to work against our own success and achievement, the the long-term goals that we may have for ourselves, the things we yearn for uh, in our lives. There are, um, by the way we're designed, uh, ways in which we actually work against ourselves. And there's sort of five main ones that I've articulated. There, there, there may be more, but there's sort of five main ones that I, that I've talked about. And, you know, they sort of range from the subconscious mind, you know, what's happening subconsciously, uh, in us, you know, the, it's believed that, you know, kind of 95% of what's going on with us is subconscious. In other words, we have no conscious awareness of, you know, the sort of what's organizing our, our, our behaviors, what's driving our behaviors. And these are things that take shape very early on in life. So, you know, personality experts theorize that the majority of our kind of operating procedures in the world are formulated by the time we're about five years old. So, you know, essentially we all have our five-year-old selves running the show and, Depending on how our early experiences went in the world, the attunement failures or breakdowns, attachment failures and breakdowns, the love we didn't get, the way we've, we came to see the world, the world's not fair, it's a doggy dog world, the world's not safe. You know, a lot of these formulations that happen very early on in life go to run our, run the show as adults. And so we're not sort of consciously in control of much of our behavior. And that can really hold us back again from getting the things that we really want. So that's, that's the, that's the first one. Do you want me to go through all, uh, the other four? Yeah, I would love to hear all <laughs> five of them. Yeah. So the second one is, is the self, what I call the self-conscious mind. This is, um, human beings in some ways over-indexing on what other people think. You know, we're, we're a social species. We operate very much in, um, in clan, in, in groups. That's a great thing. But what it also can do is make us, uh, really overestimate the importance of what other people think about us. And this is a, a psychologist that I like named Michael Gervais talks about FOPO, fear of other people's opinions and how that, that focus, that over focus on what other people think of us in many ways stops us from doing things uh, that are important to us because we think we're going to look silly or we think we're going to fail or we think, you know, we're going to be singled out. Um, and so really not pursuing the things that we want because of our self-consciousness and, and you know, sort of fear of what other people may think of us is the second one. 
Man, I get that one. Yeah. I get that yeah. one to be true. Yeah. I mean, anytime I bring up this word, like, I think it has a bad rap, um, but I've really, like, come to peace with it, but just codependency in mm-hmm. general. And codependency serves a role for sure, but it's also, like, partnering and finding pairs and, and just thinking outside of yourself so that you can find union and being relational just in general. So, you know, I know codependency, there's a lot of other sides of it which could be that FOPO piece, but it really feels like in the same, in the same category or the same language. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that again, it's like our, our social bonds and our social relatedness is, is so important. And so, so much a part of who we are as human beings and to, to an extreme or when it, when it goes too much, when we can't stop and say, well, wait a minute, you know, like I want to do this cause I want to do this. I don't care what, you know, people think, yeah, what do I care. want? Yeah. yeah. What do I what want? Do I, what do I think? What's my opinion? What's my relationship with myself? Exactly. Um, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and from a performance standpoint, we all know because we've all been there. Once we begin to become too self-conscious, it really hampers our performance. You know, that's when you're like, Oh, do I look silly? Do I look dumb? Am I, does everyone notice that I don't know what I'm talking about here? And right. Once we start to have those kind of self-conscious conversations, with ourselves, it really hurts our performance. So that's the other sort of side of that. Well, it, it feels an awful lot too. Like there's this kind of balance. There's a, of that almost like of the ego where if you think a little bit too less of it, you can fall into the negative traps of codependency. But all conversely, if you think too much of yourself, you can be the one that's driving the negative of the codependency. And, and, mm-hmm. and really the balance between the two maybe is more in that safer or uh, interdependent space where you're bringing your opinions, but you're also opening yourself up to the others in the healthiest way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I think, you know, we talk about what the conditions for having these uncomfortable conversations and being vulnerable is being able to know yourself, you know, and knowing who you are and coming into those conversations with a really good, strong, strong sense of self. So if you want to transcend ego, you have to have a strong, healthy ego. You can't transcend right, right. yourself from a place of not knowing who you are. So, yeah, I think that's a key key point. Yeah. So what's this third one? Yeah. So the third one is our biology is sort of like like our, our nervous systems have gone relatively unchanged over hundreds of thousands of years. In the mental health field, the term that always gets referred to is humans used to be when we were cavemen and women, you know, we'd be evading the saber tooth tiger, right? We were always running and in fear of the saber-toothed tiger that that was there around any any potential corner, we really needed to be on guard. In many ways, our nervous systems have not evolved out of this sort of on guard um, triggering of our stress response, which basically makes our our rational mind go offline and kicks into action. This you know, am I going to fight? Am I going to run? How am I going to respond to this danger? So what ends up happening is we respond to perceived social threat in much the same way as we would respond to physical threat. And many of us are living in constant state of, of the stress response. It can have negative health benefits. It can lead to chronic anxiety. And it doesn't put us in our best place for performance, for, you know, sort of being our best selves. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then the other aspect of our biology is that, you know, as animals, we are energy conservers. 
So we're always looking to conserve energy, right? This explains why it's so easy to sit on the couch and binge watch, you know, Netflix rather than go out and kind of get after it, do that mountain bike and do that run or do that because we are hardwired to want to conserve energy. And as we know, many of the most meaningful, worthwhile things in our lives require expenditure of energy. And so we really need to be able to deal with this impulse to conserve energy and be able to have some tools that remind us of what it is we really want and why it's worth expending that energy. And so this sort of our biology works against us kind of really kind of getting out there, getting after it, putting ourselves in stressful or um, situations that we may perceive as dangerous that really are not, um, you know, oh, I'm going to be excluded, I'm going to be singled out, I'm not going to be, you know, accepted into the group. All of these things that we need to be able to overcome if we're really going to do our thing and be our best. Yeah, I mean, if our five-year-old self is is behind the remote control, then ultimately I imagine that nervous system is coming from a place of navigating some unique territory. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through all these just as you're going through them of, about how much we're learning in our five-year-old selves, you know, the world that we find ourselves in, the pressure that our society has for peak performing, and then how that shapes everything that we do, right? Like, do these patterns of uh, perfectionism and workaholism and, and overall lack of balance, are they forming at these such formable ages and really setting us up for, um, you know, destructive behaviors as we become adults? Yeah, yeah. So much of our identity, I mean, we get told how to classify ourselves. You know, I always tell this story when I was, uh, you know, about five or six, uh, I really liked Wonder Woman. And my parents, you know, were, were cool. They bought me a Wonder Woman lunchbox. And I would take it to school and started to get made fun of for carrying a Wonder Woman lunchbox. And it didn't make any sense to me. You know, why? So what? You know, I like Wonder Woman. What's the big deal? And, you know, and I think I caved under the social pressure. And then I was like, I don't like Wonder Woman anymore. That's not okay for a little boy to carry a Wonder Woman lunchbox at that time where, you know, where I was, where I was, where I was growing up. And so I had to discard that part of myself that identified with a strong feminine heroine right. there. And then I had to, because of the social pressure, look to, okay, well, who are the more manly, you know, more masculine heroes that I can look up to, you know? So, you know, I think I started to go like baseball players or something like that. But, you know, that, that, that was me leaving parts of myself behind. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it threw a learned social pressure behavior. Yeah. So, so we have the unconscious mind, then we have the self-conscious mind, and then we have the biological systems. Now, so what's four? Yeah. So the fourth one is really um, around the nature of our minds, how our minds work, and the lack of discipline and focus that our minds have by nature. So this is, you know, meditators call this monkey mind. Um, how distractible we are. And this is, again, this is the way our minds are designed. There's a, a prominent uh, psychologist whose theory was that or is that thinking was developed, came about to deal with all the thoughts we have in our mind. Our minds needed some way to deal with our thoughts, so thinking came into being. So by nature, we're unable to focus very well, right? And again, our motivational systems are, you know, sort of, you know, from neuroscience, the way that our brains work is by being attracted to novelty, sort of the new shiny object that catches our attention. So we're very distractible in that way. And in some ways, that's great. And that's cool. And, it, you know, we sort of mix it up and we're out there seeking in the world. 
But in other ways, when we need to be focused and we need to sort of show up day in, day out in order to pursue our goals or perfect our craft, it's hard for us because we're working against the nature of our minds, which is to be attracted to the novelty, the new shiny objects, and the sort of associative thought that we have in our minds that's like, oh, you know, that reminds me of this, and that reminds me of this, that reminds me of this. That's that sort of the, mon- the monkey mind. And so unless we deal with that and, and are able to train our minds to be more disciplined and to be more focused, it's going to be hard for us to sort of sustain ourselves through anything that requires, you know, that kind of day-in, day-out effort. Yeah, and I mean, when we're talking about how to be able to have awkward conversations, I think everything that you've just said, the unconscious mind, the self-conscious, the biological, the nature of our minds, none of them are in our favor of wanting to sit and entertain awkward conversations, right? Yes. Or be, be with what's uncomfortable, um, especially this idea of what's shiny and what's novelty and what feels good or what we think feels good, old patterning. Yeah, so yeah. I appreciate you bring that up and I just thinking of it in a different way. Yeah. And I'm really curious about the last one too. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to, to see what you guys think of the last one. Cause the last one I could see in some ways um, does lend itself to having uncomfortable conversations. So the, the last one is what neuroscientists call the negativity bias. This is again, something that's hardwired into our brains, which is that we are more apt to focus on and amplify the negative than we are to focus on and amplify the positive. And this, again, comes from an evolutionary, you know, sort of survival origin where, you know, when you're walking through the forest, it, it was much more important to be on the lookout for the snake that maybe is really a, a, a twig, but, you know, to be on guard for this is something that could hurt me rather than the beautiful looking flower that's nice, but is not going to potentially kill you. So we're much more scanning our environments for the negative. What could go wrong? What's not right here? Rather than what's going well, what's good, what's beautiful. Therefore comes this, this practice of learned optimism, practiced optimism, gratitude practices that really help to train our minds to be able to focus on what's good here. And, you know, we all know that while it may be good for survival to focus on what's wrong, it can be very taxing and, you know, it can be very antithetical to the kind of lives that we want to live to enter into conversations that may be difficult when you're maybe making negative assumptions about the person or how the conversation is going to go or what it is you stand to gain. I think in a lot of ways that negativity can work against us, although maybe I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts on this. If the negativity bias maybe in some ways also says, hey, I'm willing to be a little bit uncomfortable for, for some time here. That's okay. Yeah. I, I mean, when you first said it, I was like, I definitely find myself attracted to negativity bias. But to me, that's become things that I have a desire to, I think, in an... um in a less mindful way, things I want to fix. So that becomes kind of fuel to my high performing Mm -hmm, side. mm -hmm. But then in a really grounded way, it can also be what I feel is like the core purpose driving uh, part of, of my high performing as well. Like this desire to be only working with social causes and like that I see all the bad or the the struggle or the pain and it actually can do the opposite it doesn't stifle right so much as it inspires or motivates me yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense 
my initial thoughts about just negativity bias is like, you know, it really, these, these conversations are uncomfortable. So therefore we do try to avoid them. And, you know, one of the quickest ways to break through that and, you know, instead of running away, like the first four areas would tell us to do is to realize that there's power in the negative, like the uncomfortable conversations are probably the ones that we need to have. There's an importance to them. What is it that's causing us to feel uncomfortable about that conversation? And shouldn't that be our cue to then lean in? Mm. Um, and, you know, the more that we have maybe a positive outcome of an uncomfortable conversation, the more than that positively reinforces like, hey, while it was hard to talk about, I didn't like it at the beginning. I didn't want to lean in, but it was really healthy on the other side. And you can kind of see that negative response as um, something that's helpful to to use as fuel, kind of like Mary said. Yeah, I love I love that. Or untangle the preceding things that you mentioned, Bob, you know, untangle the unconscious, subconscious and biological and so on. That's kind yeah. of what I'm considering. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I love that. It's, it's a little bit of a re- reframe of, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to be awkward. Awesome. Great. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> bring it on. Yeah, let's do this <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> it's, as we started to like see this uncomfortable as our magic sauce or secret sauce of the third place we're like oh the ones that make us go oh i don't want to talk about that those are the ones that are like yeah we need to talk about that <laughs> that's how you know yeah that's the indicator that's right <laughs> yes so what are some of these you know as a diagnosed high performer um but also it's interesting because i think as a woman and i work with with teen girls this is something that I'm actually pressing against a little bit is just feeling like they um, are receive reward or validation when there's high performance because it it's, can be really challenging to like move beyond that and see worth from being, not doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering like what are some of those negative side effects you've seen of, of high performers? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one that I see that's kind of universal, uh, it seems like, is these sort of feelings of insufficiency, like, and phoniness, you know, what uh, otherwise known as imposter syndrome. And that was a term that was coined by two psychologists in the late 70s, doing research around high-performing women. This feeling of, even though I I achieve at consistently high levels, I still don't belong here. I'm a phony. I'm going to be found out. And so that's certainly one, right? We can have high performance without really feeling in- internally confident, internally whole, um, or fulfilled. So the, the way I define peak performance is that you are achieving and you are feeling fulfilled. It's both of those things. And then it's not being, it's not necessarily being the best, but being your best. Mm. So, which is important because, yeah, that, that takes away that, that comparison that sort of self-conscious mind piece of, no, this is about me being my best. Am I being, am I better than I was yesterday? Am I improving and developing? Am I getting results, but also am I fulfilled by those results? So I have to be fulfilled. Boy, I love that you said that out loud because I think that that's uh, maybe is a crucial component of the balance of peak performance. It's not overperforming either. You know, when Mary was talking about, um, you know, her, her work with young women, you know, my, my immediate thought was, um, 
just how maybe an unbalance of peak performance or overachievement couldn't show up in something like an eating disorder, right. you know, a, a strive for perfection and, and in a comparison to other people is a factor within that. Right. And, and my question was, you know, how does, how does that show up in unhealthy ways for young boys or young men, you know, and what are some of the differences between the two that we can look at in a different sex is almost as warning signs of overperforming. And then with what you just said now, like, understanding that it's that self-comparison that bring out your best self could be almost like the antidote to an overperformer. Yeah. I mean, we saw this in the Olympics with Simone Biles, who, you know, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this where, you know, she, she was, you know, potentially going to do something where she could get, get badly hurt if she had done it, if she had sort of given into the pressure that was on her to perform. Everybody wanted her to, you know, bring home gold for, you know, for the U S and, you know, continue, you know, sh show how she was the best gymnast in, in you know, in, in history. And, you know, she had the presence of mind enough to say, wait a minute, this is, this is dangerous for me. If I, if I do this, if I give into this pressure. Um, and I think was very courageous in, in her, you know, taking a stand for herself and saying, no, I'm not in a place where I can do this right now. And I don't have to prove, yeah. I don't have to prove anything to anyone. And, and really it was, uh, courageous is the word you used it, but like it was a show of strength. Mm -hmm. It was, it took more strength to say, I can't do this. than it was, than it would have taken to just go on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, do you, I mean, I'm sure this has probably come up, but it, like you remember when Carrie Strug persevered you know back in the olympics i think that that's come up too which i think is fascinating because it was oh how strong is she you know like that progress from the 90s mid 90s to now i see that as progress and i think most yeah. people would probably agree but like uh that i think is the shift that you're leaning into with pink performance and i think that the challenge that i'm still seeing though because i love this concept and this idea is actually knowing what fulfills you yeah. because I still feel like I'm wrestling with on a day to day, like what really fulfills me, you know, maybe sitting more in that, like I mentioned earlier, that self-conscious, like I know what fulfills others and I know what fulfills the collective. And so I'm thinking and I'm navigating with all of that in mind. So how do we find out the second component component which is the fulfillment side, yeah. our values and actually what, what satisfies that. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question because without that, that is when we, all we have is comparison to others. Oh, they, you know, they're doing that or, or what society would have us believe is fulfilling versus what is my own recipe or formula for fulfillment. And I, you know, so, so, so you know, when I, I talk about this, this, um, you know, the peak performance formula. And so to me, the formula, uh, consists of three, variables. There's purpose, which is what, uh, who am I at my essence and the impact that I want to have on the world given who I am. So that sense of purpose. The second one is values is sort of what are the beliefs that, that, that drive my behaviors day to day. And the third is vision is what's my, what's my vision for myself? What do I want? Um, and then vision sort of breaks down into, you know, more sort of achievable goals. But it's really through those things, as well as knowing how our minds work and sort of understanding, um, you know, sort of uh, our, ourselves on, on some deeper levels. Um, but it's really 
through those three things, in, in, in my opinion, and through my work with my clients and, and, and you know, the, the sort of extensive research that I've done on this, that is the way that we can set goals and pursue things that are personally meaningful and fulfilling to us. And thereby, in pursuit of those things and through achieving those things, we feel fulfilled because we're, we are doing what we really want, not what somebody else wants or what society tells us we want. But we have to have some sense of what, what we got to ask that question. What do I want? You know, what is my, what is my vision for myself? What is my purpose? Right? What is, what is deeply meaningful to me? Uh, the essence of who I am and how does that get expressed in the world? And what are my values? What are the behaviors that if I do those things day in, day out are going to lead me to the right, make the right decisions, to make the right actions and that are going to get me to my, my destination? Then we're on a path of fulfillment. You know, I, I think that, um, when I immediately read peak performance, I immediately associated peak with high performance mm -hmm. and everything that you just said there, you know, so, so with that, one of my questions was going to be like, well, is everyone supposed to be a high performer? But I, you just right now reframed all of that for me because what I just heard is it's about peak performance that we all can be this peak performance. And it really is less about that comparison and truly through purpose, through our values, through our vision, how do we, be our best version of ourselves. So peak is all about uh, that healthiest self. Yes. So I think you answered the question I had. I don't think we are, <laughs> we're not supposed to associate high performance with peak performance. And I, that was a really great way to say all that. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason why I, I, I yes, I, and I, I think you, you, um, you picked up on the kind of the way that I'm thinking about it and talking about it really nicely. I, I, I do though think, you know, because of the work that I do, um, you know, in, in working with, you know, with CEOs, founders, leaders, you know, there is a results component to this. And, but I don't, I don't see it as a negative. We all want results. We all want to achieve the things that are important to us in life. So there is, there is some sense of like, you know, Hey, like, let's go, let's go after it. Let's get it. Let's make the things happen that we want to, we want to make happen. So I don't want to leave that part out. Because I sure, do think that's yeah. it's fulfilling to 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 achieve a goal, but it's got to be a goal right. that's meaningful to you that you set for yourself right, right. that's important. And then once that goal gets fulfilled, it's like you know it's gold. Mm -hmm. As someone who went to a a Buddhist undergraduate, some of the language that you use just feels similar or familiar mm -hmm. rather. And I know that you've spent some time in Vietnam, right? Yes. And so, you know, to wrap, I kind of want to understand if that time in Vietnam or, um, or anything about what followed thereafter influenced this work just from a personal story point. Yeah. Uh, so much of it. I mean, you know, so I grew up in New York city in the eighties and nineties. Um, New York was a kind of a rough and tumble place at that time. And, you know, I was a, a teenager in the 90s and, you know, going to high school in the Bronx and sort of, you know, trying to survive New York City without a lot of tools to manage my own emotions. And it was about survival. It wasn't about, you know, how do I thrive? Um, and Buddhism for me was a way I, I wanted some tools to be able to manage my emotions in my mind, to be able to sort of be in control of them as opposed to them being in control of me. 
And I went to Vietnam. I happened to go to Vietnam in college. And through a friend of a friend, I met a Buddhist nun who was running a restaurant that was taking street children off the street and training them to be servers and cooks. And it was like this awesome place. It was a vegetarian restaurant in Ho Chi Minh City. And I remember um, talking to the owner, this Buddhist nun, about how the work that she was doing, this incredible restaurant she had created was sort of part and parcel of her Buddhist identity. They weren't separate. So she she could be in the world in this really amazing caring, compassionate way, helping others. And I said, oh, this is something I got to I gotta learn. And so I went back to Vietnam a couple of years later and spent about two years there uh, studying Buddhism, studying meditation, really, you know, learning the nature of my mind and, and how to gain some control over it and how emotions um, are temporary and are passing and are just emotions. And the anger I was feeling or the, the hurt or the sadness that I was feeling um, – were really kind of clouds passing and that I could kind of control them. It was up to me to uh, determine what actions I was going to take in my life. And I could be the person who I wanted to be, um, as opposed to being defined by my emotions, my, my monkey mind. And I've had a meditation practice now for over 20 years um, that has really helped me to deal with a lot of these pieces of this performance paradox to overcome the ways in which naturally we kind of work against ourselves. And so meditation, I think, is a powerful tool. Yeah, I mean, I just heard all the things that you talked about at the beginning, the biological, the unconscious, and how those practices can really give you those tools to meet the 95% powerful part of our minds that uh, can feel impossible to defeat, you know, or to overcome. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to be very sheepish um, probably 10 years ago with my psychotherapy clients and then later with my executive coaching clients, I used to be kind of sheepish about recommending meditation. And that changed within the last five to eight years with the amount of data and research that's been done that validates the benefits of meditation. And so now I'm, I kind of wholeheartedly suggest it and I'm like, wait, you don't meditate? You know, you're, you're, you're missing out. <laughs> you know, you're, you're really missing out on a, on a powerful tool. So now I'm, I'm you know, I, I sort of push it. <laughs> I push it a little bit more fer yeah. fervently. <laughs> yes, totally. And so what sort of meditation do you do? Because I think that that's always like we talk a lot about meditation, but there are so many different types. And I love that I feel like this comes back to something you touched on it without us really pressing into at the beginning, but the self-care piece to in order to sustain peak performance. Yeah. Um so I, I consider this a part of that bucket and I'm wondering what sort of meditation and how much time you spend on it. Yeah. Cause I think that that's just a fun thing for people to know, like yeah. what, whether it's realistic or unrealistic to them. But I think I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I started out with, with Zen and, uh, you know, learning that at a monastery in, in Vietnam and then studying at Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery where he, you know, was a, a novice monk, um, where we did walking meditation and, and some of the more mindfulness meditation practices. And then, the sort of second half of my meditation career uh, has been with Vipassana, which is, you know, awareness of sensations and really spending time experiencing the sort of temporary and fleeting, fleeting nature of life through a meditation practice known as Vipassana. So that's been my primary practice for, you know, probably the last 10 years. And, you know, it's, I, I would say it's, it's sort of, um, off and on. Mm -hmm, but sure. I try and be as consistent with it as I can. I try and do some every day. They say that the sort of changes in the brain can be uh, achieved with eight minutes 
of meditation. 20 minutes is sort of seen as the kind of minimum lasting dose, a session of 20 minutes. So I aim for 20 minutes every day if I can cool. get it in. I uh, spent a lot of my career in specialty whole leaf tea, which mm-hmm. is like very, they, they're like sisters to meditation. I don't know. The two of them really go hand in hand. But the 20 minute mark when steeping tea is the medicinal mm. effect for, for herbs. So I just love that. I, I feel like it's, there's something about this 20 minute mark that clearly takes something from a superficial level to a medicinal level. I love it. Well, Bob, you know, this has been amazing. Uh, I feel like I just learned so much and, and now I'm going to have to figure out how to get at least my eight minutes in every day. So <laughs> where, where can people find your book uh, and more about your work? So, yeah. So my book, The Peak Performance Formula, Achieving Breakthrough Results in Life and Work, was released uh, this past August and is available for purchase on Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, IndieBound.com. Uh, and I hope you pick up a copy and enjoy it. And I'd love to hear from you and, uh, you know, hear what you think. Uh, thank you so much, Bob. This was really fun. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, David. Nice talking with you guys. Yeah, you too. Be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms apple spotify also check out the episodes on our website thirdplacepodcast.com for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes the third place is all about continuing the conversation so make sure you follow us on instagram and facebook at third place podcast there you can check out our weekly co-host happy hours on igtv and if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.